This podcast is sponsored by Oasis Aqua Lounge. Join our online community of sex-positive swingers and individuals looking to make connections while we are all stuck at home. We host events seven days a week and have hundreds of active members to meet and mingle with. Head to members.oasisaqualounge.com to join the party today. Hello, and welcome back to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and today we're continuing the conversation on research around sex work. I am welcoming back Aleph Ufkis. Oh, my God. I am welcoming back Alex Ufkis, who teaches computer science at both the university and college level and also happens to be my husband. Yeah, your husband whose name you don't even know. Well, they were editing out that part until you just said that, so... Well, now it's going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> your name is not easy with all of those... K's and S's and I don't know, my last name is way easier than yours. All right, as a reminder, the studies that we're going to discuss go far deeper than the conversation we're going to have today. So please make sure you read them yourself. Find out what you find interesting. Today's study is called A Heated Debate, Theoretical Perspectives of Sexual Exploitation and Sex Work. It's by Lara Gerasi from December 2015. And just the basic summary. In the conversations about sex work, we look macro, big overarching society structures, not micro individual choice and circumstances. And the debate is always about sex work versus exploitation while only looking at the macro. So the author is going to discuss macro theories of causation at the structural level, micro theories at the individual level, the relation between macro and micro, and then makes a conclusion. Alex, did we sense any bias in this paper? I did not sense bias on the part of the author because this paper, like the previous one, is what we would call a survey paper. It's it's not doing any original research or data gathering. It's just summarizing what's been done already. There certainly appears to be a significant lack of research in certain areas of sex work. There seems to be a lack of research defending certain positions, right? You, ha you have a situation where 90% of the research on a given subset of sex work tends to support one position and there's no research whatsoever being done in other areas so a bias appears in that sense the research is biased but the researcher no, is not because yeah, they're just not, aggregating that information for not you. in the sense that the researchers themselves are biased but all the research is being done in one area and no one's actually looking at other areas right and when you get funding for research you have to do a paper you have to actually be as focused as you possibly can you can't just do it generally that would take years you're supposed to keep it as specific as possible ideally you have some hypothesis that you set out to show is correct if everyone is making the same hypothesis right no one is making a competing hypothesis then it just doesn't happen Okay, my only other question before we get into this one, it is theoretical perspectives. It's literally just talking about what felt like a million different theories. So what is a theory? Explain it for the average person, because apparently I thought a theory was a hypothesis or I was I was confused about the scientific definition of theory. So can you go into specifically what that means? Yeah, so theory versus hypothesis, this has a very specific meaning in the in the scientific context. And those two words tend to be used interchangeably outside the scientific context, and it's a pretty big deal. In the scientific context, a theory is just about as true as anything can be, right? If, if something rises to the level of theory in the scientific context, it means every shred of evidence we've had for the past century is overwhelmingly in support of this particular viewpoint, right? We have the theory of gravity, right? People don't contest how gravity works, you know, unless you're on the bleeding edge. The theory of evolution, the theory of general relativity, these things are all very well established, very well validated. To use the word theory to describe something that, oh, it's just an idea. I think it might be true, right? That tends, that's a hypothesis. Yeah, that's what we would call a hypothesis in science. A, a hypothesis is something you suspect might be true. And if you have a hypothesis, first you come up with, okay, what experiment can I do to demonstrate that this hypothesis is correct, right? To either prove or disprove it. Right. And it becomes a theory if you can replicate that experiment and you get the same results over and over and over again. Yeah, over many, many years. Right? So in social a, a, a sciences, though... theory is though, very concrete, yeah. But social sciences, when you're studying people, it's hard to replicate a study and get the same outcome. So how do you develop a theory for social sciences versus STEM? Yeah, I mean, the argument from the STEM side would be pick another word. Okay. Don't call it a theory because that confuses people into thinking the theory of gravity or the theory of evolution is just a theory. It's not proven. Okay. So what I'm hearing is I should get someone who's in the social sciences to come on next time and ask them. I, I would be interested to know what they think about that. Yeah. If you are in the social sciences and listening, we would love to hear your opinion. Please write in and I will read it out loud on my podcast. I, I, I would just say, debate. yeah, very often they won't, they'll say framework. They'll say like they will use other words. Um, but, you know, right in the title of the paper, they have the word theory, which is... Right. 
Okay, so we're going to get into the macro theories of causation at the structural level. I'm not going to bring up every theory, but the parts that I found interesting, and I know that you had different theories that you found interesting, but basically here are all the ones that they discussed. Feminism, intersectionality, political economy, legal perspectives. And then it goes into much more greater detail on all those different perspectives. So... There's one word here that they bring up again. We, I believe we had neo-abolitionalist, capitalist, patriarchy, something last time. We had neoliberal last neoliberal, time. Neoliberal, right. Okay. This time the word is neo-abolitionist. I think the author later does a good job of defining it and they go into it. But there's a point here where I look at these words and I'm like, are you joking? Is this a real word? Can I point out one thing? It's, it's very common to see the word neo attached to another word that already has a common meaning. Right. And they call it neo and then that word because they want to attach a new it's and the new version. Of yeah, it's, it's commonly done so that the author or, you know, whoever's coming up with it, they can attach a new meaning that better suits their argument to a word that already has a common understanding. Right. They could just say sex work abolitionist. It's, it's one of those things you have to you have to look out for. Yeah. OK, I made a joke in my notes. Look, another word they assume, you know, but I know that we talked about this already in all of the jargon last episode, so we're not going to get into again. But I do know you were saying that jargon is important in terms of academic shorthand. Yeah, because th there are certain terms that maybe to explain what you mean by that term, like that would be a paper unto itself. Isn't this just encouraging more academic elitism? The idea that, well, I understand these words, so everyone should understand these words. I know that's an issue right now with the way that more leftist circles have discussions around certain topics. They assume that because they're familiar with the jargon, everyone in the world is familiar with the jargon, and people who don't share their same political uh, opinions or didn't, you know, maybe didn't go to the same program as them also should clearly know these words because they all learn them. Yeah, so there's some of that. There's two things going on here. Number one, you need to assume a certain level of knowledge if you're ever going to get anything new done at all, right? Because if you can't assume any knowledge on behalf of the reader, then you spend 99% of the paper just summarizing everything that came before and explaining everything that came before. There's definitely elitism. A lot of these new invented made up words, the people who come up with them, they'll have some flowery, you know, justification for why it matters. I think it's mostly wank, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Let, let the record show I am making masturbation motions in my chair. I will chair. let our listeners know every time you start making masturbation motions in your chair as we go through this paper and all the future papers. It becomes a coded language that insiders can use to communicate with each other and no one, it, it's impenetrable to the outside world. So that they can get away with just talking about nonsense and obfuscating what they're actually doing. It's elitism and it's, it's a right. bunch of shit. It just reminds me of the kind of person you meet at the dinner party and they're like, well, I have a PhD. And you're like, that's nice for you. They don't offer PhDs in my program, like in the thing that I learned. So there's literally no way I could get a PhD in the thing that I studied. But I'm glad that you think that that makes you important. Like the idea that because they have a PhD, they're so important. Yeah, I'm, I'm never impressed. It, when someone has a PhD, it tells me, okay, you did exactly enough work at your particular institution to get this credential in your particular field. That's what it means, no more, no less. Ideally, you would have to be an expert to get it, but that's not as that's someone not who necessarily did, you're saying case. you were disillusioned with the PhD process, which is yeah, why you don't I, have. For, for anyone who knows what it is, I, I got through my comprehensive exams and I was well on my way and I, I got so fed up and cynical and I just had to get out. Uh, on that note, we will move into our first point. This paper does a great job of summarizing different feminist perspectives on sex work. I personally think that if you are past Feminism 101, this is actually a very interesting paper to send to your friends. I know we just talked about elitism, but there are some people who they don't need the basics. They do need the next level. This one was actually really interesting for that purpose. It then defines neo-abolitionist. Basically, it says there's two camps in the feminism world. Neo-abolitionists, all sex work is oppression against women. And the other is sex positivism. Women have the right to choose sex work. And then the paper also goes into critiques of all the different theories. I thought it was interesting how they critique Marxist feminist perspective as being paternalistic because it ignores the autonomy of women currently engaging in or who were previously engaged in sex work. Yeah. And what I found what in the case of, you know, the radical feminist position, the, the Marx femme is something I'd never heard of until this point. But, I you know, the paper kind of gets into it, gives a description of it anyway. It, it strikes me that these particular movements are all about the liberation of women to, to make their own choices and live their own lives and have their own agency right up until those choices come into conflict with what those movements are pushing for. Right. So make your own choices, do your own thing as long as it is in service of the cause. 
Right. And there's just such a have massive your own opinion as long as it's my opinion. Yeah, there's such a mass. You have freedom within our own ideology. Yes. And I do want to say that we're having this discussion with the inherent idea that Alex and I both prescribe to a lot of feminist ideology. We believe a lot in equality for both sexes and genders. And what that looks like is, you know, the reason we're critiquing this here is because it's fun to critique the movement you're a part of sometimes. Or at least some of the things that you agree with. I'm not saying that we're rad femmes or Marxist femmes or whatever, but the idea being that, like, we're not critiquing the conservative right wings right now because that's not what came up in this paper. Yeah, without labeling myself, I tend to prioritize individual freedom. I find the rad femme view that I find it particularly offensive right. and, and, and ridiculous. Just because of the whole right? if, thought if, policing? You know, yeah, if we're really about freedom of choice and and liberation, right, then women should have the freedom to to be housewives and have nine kids. Right, and then the idea of just oh well, or, or be all sex these... workers, or sell their, or you know, right. But the only reason those women are making those choices were because they're raised in a patriarchal, paternalistic society, and their choices aren't really their choices. Yeah, I mean, how far down that rabbit hole do you want to go? You find yourself in a situation where you're being told that you don't know what your own thoughts are. You don't know what your own motivations are. Right. I know them because I've got this theoretical framework that explains everything you're feeling and I know better than you. Right. And that's where the the idea that the critiques of these movements are that they are paternalistic. Yeah, and that's when I like I say, go fuck yourself. Don't ever get that shit out of here. <laughs> the I, words are so impassioned and the tone I, is I'm so I'm not monotone. sure there's anything that that's going to make me angrier than someone who thinks like that and, and presumes to know what's best for someone else. Right. Right. Without actually understanding what that someone else is thinking or feeling. Right. Okay, so then I'm going to go a little bit more into the critiques of sex positivism, which is, I think we all know, that's kind of the camp that I really genuinely fall into. It talks about how sex positivism ignores sexual abuse assault statistics, ignores lack of economic options. And then this is the part I found particularly interesting. Critiques can be rooted in morals, specifically morals of different religious groups. And the quote is, in addition to opposing feminist framework, some religious organizations state that sexual integrity is jeopardized on a national level with this framework, as moral culture is damaged when sex becomes commercialized. I have some thoughts here that I'm going to share. Number one, sex is already commercialized. We are already commercializing sex. It's already on TV. It's already in our advertising. It's literally everywhere. You know, you meet those or you hear about those Christian families that don't let their kids prescribe to mainstream media because of this. But let's be honest, Christianity, the Bible, there's commercial sex in the Bible. Anyway, you know that I listen to a podcast that goes into great depth of talking about Christian culture. And even they talk about just the way that women are spoken about is treating them as commodities in a lot of these subcultures. But that's a whole other thing. So number one is the idea that like a religious organization, and we know that here they are typically talking Christian evangelicals, they're worried that sex is going to be commodified on a national level. The entire world commodifies sex already. Let's cut the bullshit. That's number one. My second thought is moral culture. Are you serious? Like your moral culture is everyone's moral culture. I'm Jewish. So it drives me nuts when people are like, oh, we're going to make laws rooted in religious morality. But religious morality is subjective. Morality itself is subjective. We as a society haven't all agreed on what's considered moral or amoral. And so it is ridiculous when you say we all have the same morals or my morals are correct and yours are wrong. I think this goes back to you saying fuck you for telling yeah. me what I should think is right or not right. With respect to the first point, another example of this is, you know, the whole before marriage equality happened in the States, before gay marriage was, you know, pushed through by the Supreme Court. It's a moral argument. Oh, marriage is sacred. It's like marriage is not sacred, not in America. Like you've got the bachelor, the bachelorette, who wants to marry a millionaire? Like it, it's, there's nothing sacred about that. Uh, most, most- Do you mean millionaire matchmaker, my favorite yeah, show? Yeah, well, there's a million, yeah, well- you watch that stuff, but you're not a hypocrite because you don't, you don't, oh, you're not making the marriages sacred arguments in the same way. Absolutely not. But I think Millionaire Matchmaker and Million Dollar Matchmaker is a wonderful show, and that's a different podcast. Right, but, but this Continue. is the, a lot of these politicians pushing this stuff. Like they've all been divorced and remarried three times. Their their wife is forty years younger than them. Like it's not to question their love, but like come on, right? Marriage is not sacred. There's there's nothing sacred about sex either. Right. When you look at the culture, the other thing I might point out is there's hypocrisy around that with a lot of the politicians. Yeah. But a, a lot of the, the evangelical conservatives, you know, having grown up Christian myself, 
They would make the exact same interfaith marriage. That's correct. You heard him correctly. Please yeah, continue. Faith, faith being used in the in the most loose sense of the term. You were raised Christian. I was. You went yeah. to Christian high school and high yeah, school. I, and I went to Jesus camp and all the good stuff. But a lot of the Christians who make those moral arguments would also push back against the secularization of culture. Right. right? So they're they're not hypocrites about it. I yeah, right? but in I personally sense. think that the secularization of culture is great because you're creating a more inclusive society that more people are welcome in. Yeah, I'm just... Yeah, I know. It's, there, there's it. a disagreement between them there. And I, I agree with you, obviously. But. I want to add, there are certain sects of sects, S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X, of Judaism. Sects. Thank you. I'm bad at enunciating. There are certain sects of Judaism that also see sex as between a man and a woman and sex should only be done for procreation and there's no birth control. Like we have that too. Every religion, every non-religion has those people as part of it with their own little movement that they, or in Judaism, the bigger movement, unfortunately, growing ever steadily by their lack of using birth control. But the point being that even there, the morality going into that or the the rules and the laws going into it are still different than what the conservative evangelicals think it is. What the result is might look the same to an outsider, but the underlying root of the morals going into it are different. We can boil some things down to patriarchy, but there are still different cultural developments. So for me, having a critique of something be rooted in a religious moral argument, that to me already invalidates the argument to me. Yeah, I would agree. I'm receptive to arguments about morality as you know for the greater social good just not when it's motivated by religion i think you can make a moral argument for whether drugs should be legal or illegal right and you can make a compelling case in either direction but those arguments aren't going to be rooted in a religious faith right that's the problem and i think when it comes to sex work sex in general I, yeah, why is marriage something that's always why, why should faith? why should religion that's the you know religion should not be informing policy public policy. I agree. Okay, the section on intersectional theory on sex work. Oh, you are excited. I see your smug face already. So, intersectionality declares that the impact of sexism is qualitatively different depending on women's class or race identities. The impact of intersectionality was first utilized to explain the following within the context of domestic violence. So, impact of intersectionality was first used in the context of domestic violence. One, the socially structured invisibility of certain victims, mainly that all women's experiences are not the same. Two, who the appropriate victims are and the denial of victimization. And three, the real world consequences of intersection and domestic violence. So the idea being that a black woman may be more associated with embodying perversions of desire, treated as lower class from white women. But how this results is we care more about a white woman who's a victim of domestic abuse than a black woman. That's just their culture. Oh, well, you know, that's just, you know, black people, right? Like there's all these associations we make that are just so untrue and so ridiculous. And that's when intersectional theory came in to sort of discuss that. Can I just say that this is going to sound elitist, but that strikes me as self-evident, right? That if you have two women, they're going to experience sexism differently if they have different skin colors, because that plays a part, right? Your experience in society is going to be the, you know, the sum of all your various you know, visible identity markers, right? Male, female, skin color, et cetera. From that perspective, intersectionality makes perfect sense. Shall I get into the criticisms? Okay, you, you go ahead. Okay, criticisms. No defined methodology or empirical validity has only been used to describe a Black woman's experience and no one else's, like sexual orientation or other races. And the quote is, intersectionality is more commonly viewed as a framework to understand the impact of multiple identities on the oppression of women, but is criticized for actually contributing to or creating additional hierarchies for women. So now you've got oppression Olympics. Yeah, it, it replaces, let's say, competence hierarchies, which intersectionality finds problematic because it doesn't take into consideration that it's not about competency. And it replaces it with another hierarchy of victimhood. But that's not the part that blew my mind. I've always kind of felt this way about intersectionality, but this paper comes right out and says it. Main criticism of intersectionality include a lack of defined intersectional methodology. So it, it lacks any description of how we would conduct research in this framework, and it lacks empirical validity. So they have no experiments and they have no results. So is it a theory? It's not even a hypothesis. It's barely a hypothesis. 
Yeah, I mean, it's in, one of those, in the scientific well, this perspective, an, this is one of those things where in the scientific perspective, it's not a hypothesis. In reality, you're like, yes, obviously, this makes perfect sense. But that, that's the danger, right? There, there's nothing so obvious, you know, such that it doesn't require any sort of validation or experiment to, to demonstrate it, right? The, the basic idea behind it passes the sort of the bullshit test. You know, any scientific field where where there was no methodology and no results, you like it's garbage. You throw it away. Intersectionality, I think, is very big. And I mean, I see it a lot in terms of social media circles and social media based conversations. You've been saying that you're seeing it a lot in academia. Oh, it's everywhere. I, I don't think you can get a social science degree without having intersectionality discussed in, in most of your courses. Right. So I, I found these criticisms of all of these other things that I usually ascribe to, like intersectionality as a whole. I like to consider myself an intersectional sex positive feminist. That being being said, I don't think that people realize that intersectionality is a lens and a theory or hypothesis, for lack of better words at this time. Framework. I think they framework. use the okay. term framework. The intersectionality is a framework, not the framework. Sex positivism is a framework, not the framework. Rad femme and Marxist feminist perspectives are a perspective, not necessarily the only one. Rad femmes and Marxist femmes, they have some thoughts that I think are really interesting. The Marxist feminist talking about the intersection of class politics and just economy of labor and the way that it influences gender and sex and all of those things. I think that's really fascinating and interesting, but it's not the only factor at play. So the idea being here, the point that I want to get across is that these theories are all part of a bigger picture. There's not one that answers all the questions. We need to be looking at multiple ones like this paper does in order to get a full picture of what's going on. Yeah, I would say understanding an understanding of intersectionality, it contributes to an explanation, but it doesn't say this is why something happens, right? You can never, ever, ever say you are black, therefore X, or you are white, therefore Y. Right. And that, that's what you're a man. Therefore, yeah, this. you're a woman. Therefore, and that's that. not what the developers of intersectionality had in mind, I don't think. But that tends to be how it's used in pop culture. You mentioned social media. It's, it's on social media. Oh, you're white. You can never understand X, Y, Z. Or you're a man. Therefore, you don't know what this is like. Bernie Sanders famously a couple of, you know, when would this have been? I forget exactly, but it was in the last four years. He got up and said, if you're white, you don't know what it's like to be poor. That's not true. That's intersectional thinking. That's where this comes from. Like, that's pretty fucking ridiculous to say. When I was taught intersectionality in my undergrad degree, it was taught in the idea that a person is composed of more than just one factor and all those different factors yeah. influence their their the way they are treated in the world, but also their view of the world. And poverty and class distinctions was actually a thing that was talked about. So, for example, you could be a black poor woman. You're fucked. You could be a poor white man. You're fucked in a different way because you don't yeah. have generational wealth. But the difference here in intersectionality in terms of this, like they're saying it was used to talk about the way victimization is perceived in domestic violence. So if you're looking at it in terms of how you perceive someone and how that influences the way that you go in the world, it's an interesting topic that we should definitely talk about more and definitely try and run experiments on. I mean, we should run experiments, but they don't, as this paper clearly criticizes. We just talk about it, but no one's actually doing any science. That's what it. leads to it being used in such a crude way. On social media and by politicians. And everything you said is fair game, right? This, this very often happens when ideas that sort of gestate in academia make their way out into the real world. People have no idea what they're doing with it. This paper is from 2015. So there might have been research conducted since. We're having this conversation in the context of what this paper is proposing. Yeah, intersectionality has been around for a while, though. Yes. Oh, yeah, for a lot longer. Yeah. I don't want our listeners to think that we hate intersectionality no. and hate women because that's just not true. Okay. Just want to clearly state that I like women and I'm a feminine. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm not going to. I married one. You did. Oh my God. Did I fuck up? Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I don't think this is the reason you fucked up if I marry me. <laughs> There's other things. Right. Okay. I'm just joking. We love each other very, very dearly. Um, we are currently holding hands. And We're probably spending a lot of time, but I, I have a... I have an ant. I almost said antidote. That's what I say when I'm being cute. I mean anecdote. You have an anecdote. An intersectional anecdote. So I visited Japan years ago, probably 2013. An interesting thing that I found out as a tall white guy in Japan 
I was there for an academic conference with two of my colleagues. They were both Vietnamese. Let us add some context here. Alex, this is before he ate anything other than McDonald's. So while he was in Japan, he didn't have sushi once. Please oh, that, continue. Yeah, that trip was wasted on me. <laughs> I, I would love to go back because now I love sushi. But anyway, continue. I, I was there with Alex. two of my colleagues, Vietnamese. So like they pass as Japanese in Japan, right? So we did a lot of like the touristy things, but we also kind of like we went to the Japanese red light district. And so one thing we noticed right away You'd have very well dressed. I don't know if they call them pimps in Japan, but just the people in charge the of man. the people in charge of getting you to come to the strip clubs. Like very well dressed, like tuxedos, Japanese men. They would go up and talk to my my colleagues, assuming they were Japanese, but neither of them are Japanese. They don't speak the language, and I, as the white guy, would get approached by not that no, not the well dressed Japanese guys. I would get approached by there's a big Somali immigrant community in Japan. Right. So that it would be the Somali guys who would approach me as the white guy and my Asian colleagues would get approached by the Japanese. So like if you're a white guy in the red light district in Japan, they don't want you to come see the Japanese women because the Japanese women are for the Japanese men. If you're a tourist, you go and see the immigrant women who are for the who, tourist who, who men. Are, yeah. And so we tried at one point to get into a Japanese gentleman's club, which is I, I think it's like an upscale Stri strip club. I don't know what exactly. We didn't you get- You don't know. We, say, you didn't even know what you were doing. You were just following your coworker no, I, around. No, the, the problem is we couldn't get inside because they'd chew me away at the door because I'm I mean, white. Alex, can we be honest? What were you wearing? Oh, probably what I'm wearing now. Sweatpants and a t-shirt and, and your hiking shoes. But it was funny because my colleague walked up and he tried to get in while avoiding giving away that he didn't speak Japanese. And they caught him when they said something to him in Japanese and he just kind of tried to nod and walk past him and they stopped him and told Udum. him to fuck off. But yeah, the idea here that you're trying to bring forth, by the way, thank you for that story. It's still one of my favorites. I think it's hilarious. In one context, it's Western context, yeah. intersectionality mm -hmm. and intersectional feminism is going to look different. And we should not assume that every single culture and society has the same rules and values. And once again, the culture is different. And so a study done on people in North America in a very particular subset, that's not going to speak to the people living in Japan with a yeah, different culture it, than ours. It just strikes me as that's that's kind of the context in which intersectionality first came to be, right? In America with its history of slavery. Right. Yeah. And now you have people talking about intersectionality as if everywhere across the world has the exact same culture and influences we're putting our Western culture on. It's the white savior complex again. Everyone has our culture. Therefore, this applies to everyone across the world. Okay. The next part that I thought was interesting was political economy perspective. Here's a quote. First used to address intimate partner violence. So once again, domestic violence. The political economy perspective has evolved to recognize important tenets of intersectionality and is applied to all forms of sexual violence, including sexual exploitation and trafficking. The political economy perspective describes the relationship between the state and economy, arguing that violence against women occurs because of the economic welfare and political processes driving the state. So first I read that and went, what the fuck did I just read? How do those words form a sentence? Uh, and then it gives some really good examples that actually better explain that word salad. Yeah, so political economy is one of these things that probably has a very well-defined meaning in the field. Yeah. But so it's not laid For someone who's accessible. just read it for the first time, I'm like, what? Right, that, that's yeah. not wanky jargon. That's actually actual jargon. Political right. science. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fair. I'm just not in that field, which is why I went, all right. But then they give really good examples. And the examples are basically how unequal pay leads women to rely on partners like men and abusive relationships or welfare. And then in regards to sexual exploitation, women who are poor will turn to sex worker trafficking because they have no other choice. That's this theory. So lack of wealth leads to a higher vulnerability to becoming prey, which I think is true of many industries. If you have no money and you need a job right now, you're going to take a job. If you need your minimum wage job to pay the rent, you're going to put up with your boss's bullshit. And minimum wage jobs fucking suck a lot of the time. You, you don't have the, the sort of the, the means to actually make a move right. right away from your situation. Or it would be much too big a risk to do so. So this theory is linking back to intersectionality, but focusing on victimization as it pertains to wealth which kind of goes back to what we were saying before. So I just thought that that was just an interesting thing to talk about. The idea that if you are poor, you are at a higher risk of being exploited. And of course, sexual exploitation is part of that because that's just another form of exploitation. Yeah, there's something called fuck you money. Yeah, having enough money that you can say fuck you. Yeah, you're not at the whim of anyone or the mercy of anyone. I would love to have fuck you money. 
Alex, go earn it for us. There's Feminism. Fuck you, money. There's definitely a joke in there about I'll fuck you for money. That's very topical. Mm-hmm. Something, something. I didn't make it for you. <laughs> okay. And then uh, the next section, I think, was the decriminalization and legalization. Yeah, I had one interesting thought around that. This is a point the paper makes. I had never really considered this before, but it, it made me laugh. Not because I think it's realistic, but it's just a funny thing that, to think about. And so the idea was if sex work is completely destigmatized and completely legalized, will we see employers basically assuming sex work of their low-level female employees? So you'll have an ad for a clerical position, data entry, something of that sort, must know Excel, must know Microsoft Word, must give a good blow job, apply within. Okay, but that's fucking ridiculous. It is ridiculous. That's why I laughed. I just, I'd, I'd never thought of that before. I don't think it's likely to happen. So it, as far as an argument against legalization, it does seem a little bit, it seems out there. Okay, so this is an actual realistic thing that you see on a lot of job applications right now. I'm applying to be a carpenter. Must know carpentry. Must know woodworking. Must have social media marketing experience. That's more an example, I think, that's become more prevalent, right? Okay, here's another one, okay? One, an admin assistant, must know Excel, must know how to file things, must know the alphabet, must know social media marketing, right? Like, social media marketing is a skill that they want people to have, not realizing it's a separate skill from everything else. It's become one of those soft skills that yeah. is just expected. I do not see blowjobs becoming a soft skill. <laughs> you might need a soft mouth. <laughs> But it's not going to become a soft skill. And I think that when that's kind of like the whole like, what is the worst case possible scenario that could happen? And the truth is, we already have people being harassed at work. Yeah. For sexual services. It's already happening and it's already seen as not appropriate. Yeah, at least if it does happen, it's right out there in the open. And okay, well, fuck that. Yeah. Guy. And, I'm not going to go work there. Just because you're legalizing sex work doesn't mean that you can then say, you must know how to do Excel and blow me. Like, that's honestly, I don't even know how they got to that thought. Yeah. And if with legalization comes destigmatization, then it, it'll be much easier for women to report that kind of skeevy behavior if it's going on behind the scenes. Right. I, right, so it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think destigmatizing sex. Work you, you're means very. Like, you found it very exasperating. I, I do found it because a, let me put a, it this a ridiculous way. and funny argument. I have friends who have said things like, "I'd love to have an OnlyFans because the extra cash, especially during the pandemic, would be really helpful." But I can't have one because that might keep me from getting a job in the future. Destigmatization means someone could have a job and have an OnlyFans and still be protected from sexual harassment at work. That's what that means. It's not that your boss is now allowed to sexually harass you. It means that you can now be protected because you're not going to lose your job and then get stuck only doing OnlyFans. If that's not even the main, like, you know what I mean? OnlyFans is like a fun extra income for a lot of people. For some people, it becomes their main income. But for a lot of people, it's the kind of income that has an expiry date. Legalizing sex work isn't going to say you must know Excel and be willing to do anal. It's the kind of thing where you can do Excel and then go shoot an anal video and you're not going to lose that job as a clerical worker. Yeah, I, I agree. Anyway, I just think the person who wrote that is just... I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just... I, I know. <laughs> you thought it was funny. Okay, I'm going to just... Because some... it doesn't affect me personally at the same level that it does you and you have friends and you have stories. And, and I have an OnlyFans. Not that I'm doing so just, videos. You know, yeah. Check my list of services, please. Okay. To summarize macro theories before we go into a commercial break, one thing that I found particularly interesting about all of it is that this paper is about sexual exploitation and sex work. The macro theories all focus on victimization except for sex positivism. And a lot of these theories were based in domestic violence, not on sex work. And I think that's part of it. They were supposed to focus on victimization, but they just treat all women as victims or potential victims. And that's ridiculous. And I think that's why I personally like being a sex positive feminist, because it doesn't just couch all women as potential future victims. It takes back the narrative. Yeah, nor does it couch all men as potential future victimizers. I think it's the sex positive view is good for everyone. Yeah. I do want to add, obviously, we are really very much ignoring trans people and non-binary people as part of this conversation. Once again, I am focusing this conversation on the research that's in front of us and the conversation that's in front of us. And we don't have information on trans people and non-binary people with these studies. So it is very much about men and women in here. But even then, a lot of these theories, they ignore trans people and non-binary people. And it is very much women victims, men victimizers. And I think that's why people are fed up with the narrative. Yeah, I mean, nothing we've said about men and women so far, I, I think it would hold equally accurate if you thought of it, you know, thought of trans men and trans women. 
Right. Right. So, I mean, the lack of explicitly inclusive language notwithstanding, right, it's still... It's just, it's a ridiculous binary that we're putting people back into. They're the same points, yeah. Yeah. That has been a lot. We're going to take a short commercial break, and then we're going to go talk about the micro theories. Sex News with Ray is sponsored by BoobsAndWings.com. Boobs and Wings is your number one place to get art on buttons by beautiful guest artists. What's the art you ask? It's a penis or a boob. That's why it's called BoobsAndWings.com. These are hand-pressed pin-back buttons that are made in Canada, and a portion of each sale goes to the artist, and a portion of each sale is going to go to a charity that supports sex workers. By the way, I'm one of the guest artists, so if you want to find all four of my penis designs, you can do so at boobsandwings.com. So head there right now. Buy yourself some nice fashion. Buy a button to scare your mother-in-law. Buy a button that'll make your brother go, why did you buy this for me? Either way, it's going to be fun, and they're all pretty affordable. Once again, boobsandwings.com. So we're going to jump back into the paper and the micro theories. Specifically, it talks about victimization and entry perspectives, victimization and exit perspectives. Literally, how do people get into sex work? How do they exit? And here's my quote. Ready? Although there are exceptions to this, four studies and all are described here, it is important to note that no theory applied to entry into sexual exploitation or sex work was supported or described by more than one author or study. The author is talking about four studies of entry perspectives, and it's only been done once. There's only one author. There's only one perspective. It hasn't been able to be replicated. The other thing I want to bring up. So just real quick, each of the four studies points to a different reason for entry. Yeah, and and just... none, none of those four studies has subsequent research backing it up. So Correct. It's, it's one standalone study for each. And it's very rationale. specific and targeted. So it talks a bit about how every single one of the studies was done on homeless youth. So the only thing that these studies are telling us are homeless youth and how they became sex workers. Yeah, and research on homeless youth does not generalize to all youth, obviously. Right, and research on homeless youth does not generalize to adult women becoming sex workers. Also, research done on homeless youth entering sex work. One of the other things we discussed, or one of the other articles I, I spoke about, talked about how predators actually case homeless shelters to try and coerce people or traffic people into sex work. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know that. So that, I mean, that, that, that just adds a whole other. Right. You know, that that adds 30 pounds to the scale of that. I mean, we don't know how accurate that is. For It was another paper on trafficking and making people afraid of trafficking. So how accurate that is is also debatable. But the only thing that we can find in terms of entry perspectives and the micro theories here on entry and exit is that all of these things apply to someone who is already part of a vulnerable section of the population. And it is speaking to that vulnerable population, not to, for example, Lady Pym, who got into sex work as an adult woman making that choice for herself. Yeah, and so an example of factual but not truthful, right? An, an advocate for an abolitionist perspective might take those studies and describe, oh, here's all the reasons that at-risk youth. They'll say at-risk, mm-hmm. right? But they won't They won't specify, okay, no, these studies were done explicitly on homeless youth. Right. Not just at, what is at-risk even? Well, exactly. Yeah. It, it's one of those terms that can mean anything depending on what you want it to mean, right? It, it's It's a weasel word. Right. It's just, it's very frustrating. So obviously the author here is doing their best to look at the micro theories that exist. And they're very transparent that these are the micro theories that exist. These are not necessarily the answers. That's basically what they imply. So that's important to point out, right? As you say, the author of this particular paper is summarizing what's out there. This isn't even saying there's something wrong with the research that looked at homeless youth. Right. The researchers looking at homeless youth, that's the research they set out to do. They may have done it very well. The point is we don't have research that generalizes more broadly. Right. And that just is what it is. Um, It just it has to be done. It's not out there. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That was my only point on micro theories that I thought was interesting. I'm not really going to get into them in great detail, especially because the information can't be extrapolated in any meaningful way for the conversations that we had on sex work in the previous episodes. And there wasn't one particular study that spoke out to me. It was mostly that point that they're all conducted on homeless youth. And it could be that that's where they get access to people to do research on. Yeah. And so this is kind of what I meant at the beginning of this when I you know, when all of the research points in a specific direction, that doesn't mean that that direction is right. So you, you ask, is there another explanation for why all the research would point this way? It's because there hasn't been any research conducted that might demonstrate a result pointing in the other direction. So if you're only looking at homeless youth, it's going to be far, far more likely that homeless youth are going to are exploited or trafficked into sex work, right? If the only research you have is pointing in one direction, then of course that it's going to appear, you know, looking from the outside in. 
that that's the way it is, right? It's not that the data points that way. It's just that we don't have data that Pointing exists to actually, yeah. no one's tried to make the other argument. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on uh, the micro theories or should we move on to the macro versus micro? No, I, that was a shorter section. I think, I think the homeless, the homeless issue in the existing research that, that was the big thing. So then the relations between macro and micro, here's a few points that I thought was really interesting just sort of from this, I don't have any direct quotes, but it's harder to exit sex work when you can't get a job or if you are getting harassed when people find out what you did before. That was sort of something that came up with the macro versus the micro. So here's all these macro theories on people going into sex work. And there's a lot of conversation on people exiting sex work and how do we get people integrated into society so that they can stop being sex workers. But the truth is, even if you're being trafficked or if you enter it very young, it is so hard to exit because of the stigma and the people find out that you've made one porno early in your career, you can't be a teacher anymore. Yeah, so that that's interesting. It, the reason it's hard to exit is not because there's some pimp threatening to kill you necessarily. It's, it's because, the rest of society keeping you a yeah, sex worker. Yeah, you, you just have no options. Even if you you have the ability to leave on your own free will, your own volition, you, you just, you're not going to have any options when you leave. So that paints a very different picture. I just think it's very interesting that, uh, yeah, a lot of the the exit perspectives did speak to the fact that people would say, if I try to exit, I can't do these things. People don't value the skills I had at a sex work as a sex worker in these other jobs. And I, you know, the interviews talked about how the sex workers felt like they did have skills that were useful in other industries, but nobody's giving them an opportunity if they find out. Or you have the issue where the employer does find out and they either get fired and they come up with a sham excuse or they say, oh, your values don't fit the values of our organization, or they yeah. say something like. And how, they, how do you how do you argue how do you argue against that? Right, your values don't fit our like. There's no rebuttal to that because they can make it mean whatever they want. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I had an internship when I was younger, and I'm one of those people where I've always been interested in talking about sex. Always, I've always talked about sex with everyone. That doesn't mean that I was interested sexually in people. I had one of my, he wasn't really my boss at one of the internships, but he definitely worked there and I was the intern. And there was a few of us who were interns and I'm not going to name the name of this company, but I was definitely in my early 20s because I graduated when I was 20, 21. So I would have been like maybe 18 or 19. He was late 20s, early 30s. And he ended up leaving and going to work somewhere else. And as soon as that was done, I started getting really inappropriate text messages from him that were very much like send nudes or we should meet up or like let's hook up sometime. Because you no longer work together. We no longer work together. But that was not the relationship we had and he had still previously been in a position of power over me. That's creepy as fuck. And that's also, I wasn't even a sex worker. I was just your average young woman who likes to talk about sex. So now imagine an employer finds out that you used to do sex work, which means, oh, you can do Excel and give blowjobs, right? To, to bring it back to that. It's not that you're expected to get blowjobs, but they definitely feel more entitled to ask for them. They're less cautious. Right. And part of that also, I think in terms of this, people don't see sex workers as people a lot of the time. They become objects to them. People see women a lot of the time as objects and not people. So it's less about, I think in these moments, it's not that sex workers can't find other jobs because they have no skills or they're being threatened, as you said, it's you have these people who just don't see them as people anymore as soon as they find out. And that's because of stigma. And that's because of cultural associations. It has nothing to do with the work itself and more to do with the mentality around it. Yeah, I think so. One thought that occurred as you were talking, you know, we, we have social programs for rehabilitating felons and getting them back in the workforce. Rehabilitating. Yeah. Or they've been rehabilitated, right? They're, they're now out of prison and we have federal programs that subsidize companies for employing ex-convicts. Right. So my question is, are there programs like that for people getting out of the sex industry? Probably not, because being in the sex industry is illegal in the first place. And it's not. Well, no, but you can be a sex worker, but you can't do anything around it. Yeah. In Canada. I know that in Canada, uh, as part of my undergrad degree, I actually got to work with sex workers who were in the process of. Can I can I back up real quick? I, yeah. I said rehabilitate. I'm not suggesting that sex workers need to be rehabilitated. Yes. Right. I, I don't mean to to cast that meaning. Right. Just helping them if they want to career transit. We, so we have are, programs to help are, people transition careers. but I know that there are programs that speak towards that. Um, I know, I actually know a few people who have done those kinds of programs, but I also mentioned in my undergrad, I got to work on a project that was with women who were currently in the industry at the street level. And they were, you know, the most visible of all the sex workers. And not all of them were choosing to exit the industry, but the idea being that they offered counseling if and when they were ready. Those programs do exist. 
but they. But I counseling think doesn't get you a job. No, it's more. I think it's also more like nonprofit work rather right. than anything else. And I do know that in the case of one person I know who has successfully exited the industry, this person had a side gig the entire time that they could then use to cover the gap in their resume. If you don't have a side gig the entire time, you're fucked. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. They basically just took the side thing they'd done, and then that became their primary role. And that's how they were able to exit the industry. Because otherwise, what do you say? That's really that's really clever. That's really clever. Yeah. Um, Gap in the resume, you've got it covered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's a little bit there. Okay, so just the paper concludes by summarizing their everything they just said and then says more research needed. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. at the end of the day, more research needed. More research needed. Okay, we're going to do something a little bit different just for you, Alex. I'm surprising you with something. Normally, we do this after the commercial break, but we spent so much time before the commercial break doing this that now we're doing it after. We have a listener question. I asked my listeners, is there something you want the male perspective on? And I had one person respond with a question they would like the male perspective on. That hit me. (laughs) He cringed. She visibly cringed. She's like, please don't ask me male questions. I'm not a man. Oh, I will answer questions from a male perspective. Okay, ready? I don't know what you're going to sideline me with. Okay. Dear Ray and male guest. Oh, yeah. No, because I told them not to look for me in the previous podcast, so they, they, they haven't found me yet. Any advice to empower men to make them feel sexy in their own skin? For example, women have lingerie. Sincerely, I'm just going to say anonymous because I said, give me your pseudonym and they didn't. So I'm going to assume that they don't want a pseudonym. Can I make one up for them? Yes. Sincerely, sexy man meat. I think there's a lot of superficial things men can do. Like w- One of the things that really made me feel good about my body was the first time I wore a tailored suit. On our wedding day? That was the first time I <laughs> wore a tailored suit. Yes. <laughs> That first fitting I had at Sir Masur, I, I had worn suits before, but always off the rack. And I always, I felt fake and I felt like a fraud. I hate dressing up. But when I had a, a properly fitted and tailored suit, I felt like James fucking Bond. So getting clothing that fits properly, that makes you feel good. Yeah. Okay. You say choosing to live in sweatpants and nerd shirts and band shirts. Yeah, that because that, that. that's how I'm comfortable when I'm in my own environment. I'm a very introverted guy. I love my solitude. I feel very uncomfortable in large groups. But wearing a properly fitted suit and seeing myself in the mirror, um, that did a lot. Now, as far as like sort of the the emotional and mental self-help type work, I that's going to be different for everyone. But again, I think as, as men, every man, it doesn't matter what your body looks like, what your, you know, what's going on. There are superficial things men can do to clean up that women don't necessarily have the same option, right? Like if, if men have... If men don't like their skin, they can grow a beard. If you've got acne scars from high school, you can grow facial hair and cover that up and look fantastic. Whereas if you've got a mustache as a woman, you're maintaining that eradication constantly. Exactly. Women got the short end of the stick on this. So men, you know. I do want to add that I don't think men understand that they too can have skincare routines. There are so many small things you can do to... Like skincare routines for women are self-care. Men can moisturize and do small moments of self-care to help them feel like they're treating themselves well, which will also give them better skin. Men with men can look rugged. Yeah. And you got bad skin as a man. You've got a rugged look. Right. Women, you've got blotchy skin. That's not like you you don't you can't dress that up as easily. So I, I think that's my point. Take advantage of those things that men have at their disposal. Yeah. Anyway, for like for me, that that Um, helped. I, I think also for me, getting on, I hate, I, I'm going to say this and it's, I hate to be one of these people going to the gym. I, yeah, I deliberately avoided saying that if you don't like your body, go get in shape. No, but, no, no. But that's I such don't a... mean, it's not about getting in shape for appearances. It's about, um, feeling physically confident in what your body is capable of. Yeah. Like when I go to the gym and I, the first time I did, I think 50 pushups in an hour in one of my boot camps, not on my knees, every full pushup. I can't do that anymore because I'm always so tired. But like the first time I was able to complete every pushup all the men were doing in that class, I was like, fuck yes. Fuck you. Fuck everyone who's ever known you. I did all these pushups. Yeah, fuck you. I don't know why. Because when I get excited, I yell fuck a lot. But. It, it seems like there's a high barrier of entry when it comes to getting into a workout routine. But the truth is you'll see results in a couple of weeks. But it's not about, but I'm saying like, even for me going to the gym wasn't, and feeling it's about, if it's about feeling comfortable in your own skin, being physically active helps you get there. Yeah. But you're talking about exalting in your achievements, right? It, like, yeah. But that's the thing. I'm exalting in my physical achievement yeah. of, I can climb these stairs without being out of breath and I couldn't before. And it's being appreciative of what your body can physically do in those moments. And that's yeah. empowering for me. Yep. And I know that that's empowering for others too. 
Also, the idea that women have lingerie. Men, you can dress up in the bedroom. That's why I said a fitted suit. Right. Yeah, women, but, like, if a woman feels sexy in lingerie, I but mean, if a man shows up to my door and we're going to have sex and he's in a fitted suit. Yeah. OK, so let's say you and I are going to have sexual intercourse with each other and you cannot. I mean, please show up in a fitted suit, but you can't show up in a fitted suit because I'm already showing up in my lingerie. And if you show up in a fitted suit, you're overdressed. What are options you can do to make yourself feel empowered and sexy in those moments? I can tell you what I would wear that's not the same thing as me feeling empowered. So I would groom. I would be squeaky clean. Trim. I have a beard. I would trim up my beard. You can't see me, but I have He a has beard. fine skin, to be clear. He um, just grew the beard to be more I would, of a man. I would trim up my beard, edge it, do whatever I got to do, put some oil You're in gonna there. You're going to edge your beard, are you? You're going to oil up that beard? Yeah, I'm going to Yeah, I'm gonna be edging. Um, <laughs> I shave my head. I would give my head a fresh shave. Mm-hmm. Right? And I like... It's going to sound dumb, but I like I would trim up my pit hair so I don't feel quite as sweaty. So you do all the small self-care, self-grooming rituals that help you yeah. feel like your best self. That's that's not something I do religiously. Right. I don't do it as a matter of course. But if I know I'm going to be naked with a lady, I try and make sure I do all those things because those are all the little things that I self-sabotage in this respect, like very, very much. Like I will hyper analyze every little thing. Right. Ooh, I I didn't I forgot to shave, so my hair's longer than I like it. Ooh, I forgot to touch up my beard. It's a little straggly here. She's gonna notice. If you make sure you do all of those things, then all of those little self-sabotage triggers that you would normally fall victim to. Yeah. You, um, you're gonna think of those things and then you're gonna feel good because you know you took care of it and you know you look yeah. your best. In terms of outfits, I think it's easy if you are doing like a fetish type thing or a fetish scene because then you just show up like you're going to the fetish club, right? Like you wear your latex, you wear your mesh, you wear your harness, chest harness, you wear your yeah. golf boots, whatever. Do you want to know my my outfit? I would wear... Do you want your parents, my parents potentially to hear your outfit? Because my mom will occasionally listen to this podcast. Uh, tight black jeans Okay. and a, a button up shirt. Yeah, that one's, that's a good look for you too. That, that's pretty timeless. With nothing underneath, no bra. No bra. Yeah, no. <laughs> Exactly. Make it easy for me to get at them titties. Yeah. Okay. Thank you no, for you, answering. You, you leave the top. You don't do it up to your neck. You leave the top button undone. Like you yeah. straighten the collar. You, you is, can roll back the sleeves. That's I do want our listener to know there is also male lingerie. While you, Alex, are never going to talk about the things that you're actually going to wear for sex purposes. No, and I also won't. would not wear them. Yeah. That, okay. There is also male lingerie. You can get like cute. Un- like look at what gay guys wear. Right. Like they got some cute shit. I once saw a guy do a striptease and he was wearing stockings and I was like, oh, I didn't realize I could get a lady boner from that. But I did find out what your partner's into and make sure you have that. So, for example, I hate the color blue. If my husband wants to get laid, he knows he's not wearing blue. I'm on wearing that blue day. right now. Mm hmm. He did that intentionally because he wants to talk studies instead of getting laid right now. But the point being that, like, I hate blue. He knows I hate blue. I have clearly stated to him many times that if he wants me to find him sexually attractive, he needs to switch back to his uh, metal shirts and away from his Donkey Kong shirts. And yet, still nothing. Uh, The Lemmings. Sorry, I laughed into my hand. I should have laughed into the microphone. (laughs) The Lemmings shirt. Another blue one. But the point being that, like, he knows what I like. And so when we're going to go out on dates or he wants to try and seduce me in whatever way, he will make sure to be wearing the things that he knows that I find attractive. The same way that girls will put on lingerie and sets that their partners find attractive. That was a big epiphany for me. What? That girls get turned on by what a guy's wearing the same way. Like, Who would th- have guessed think, that women think are about, also visual creatures? I, I, I should say that I had this epiphany in high school. It's not like I just realized it as, a, as an adult. But yeah, you're into lingerie. They're into what you wear too. Yep. Think about that. So I guess it's all those small things. It is very much about appearance and the self-care ritual that goes into maintaining that appearance. But I I think that that's part of it. Find something that makes you feel good. Find something that you know your partner thinks you look good in. It The energy will build. On that note, any last thoughts? No, thanks for the question. You're welcome. So that's it for today. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week with our last paper. Alex, where can people find you? You can't find me. Don't look. I am unfindable. You're also unknowable. And if you're the government and you're listening, that goes for you too. You make us sound like off-gridders. I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. <laughs> you can follow the podcast at Sexies with Ray on Facebook and Instagram and submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. You can follow me. I will not be wearing a tinfoil hat or anything at all, really, at Razor Latex on Instagram, OnlyFans, and Patreon, or Wife Bay Ray, where I will be wearing something on Instagram and TikTok. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Weisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. The theme music is by Blank and Brilliant, and a special thank you to Blue Microphones. Photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. 